Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Maeve Higgins is a comic and writer and a really great one. You'll hear more about that in a little bit, but first a story from her. She's from Ireland. She moved out to New York about five years ago. One night, she was hanging out at a friend's house. I um, was at one of these parties that I'm sure you're familiar with, which is like a kid's party, but all the adults go to. And it kind of like blends into the evening time and people are drinking and the kids are all playing. And um, I got chatting to this one guy and he said to me, with with the first minute of meeting him, you know, he said, you know what people don't tell you is you're not always going to like your kids. Sometimes you're not going to like your kids. And I was like, whoa, because I just asked, like, was he online for the bouncy castle? It's Bullseye. Coming up, Maeve Higgins. She'll talk about moving to the United States, how it impacted her act, her personal life, and more. Plus, did you know she hosts a podcast with a former president of Ireland? She's hugely into climate justice, and she's so passionate about it and really wants to spread the word. So I think initially she was like, I need to make a film about this. And then people were like, a film takes a really long time. And like, why don't you make a podcast? And she was like, what's a podcast? You know, she didn't know what a podcast was. But first, Boz Skaggs. The music legend has been in the game for over 50 years. Who inspired him to become a musician? It was it was Chuck Berry that, that got me uh, big. I heard Maybelline for the first time, and it was as if it were being broadcast from outer space. It was so beautiful and so exotic and so rocking, and the lyrics were so mysterious. And finally, my favorite television show about dumbbells. That's coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Boz Skaggs. He's a singer-songwriter with a career that now spans five decades. He's recorded psych rock, folk, soul, and smash hits like this one. That was Lowdown from Skagg's 1976 album, Silk Degrees, a record that went platinum five times. Lately, like a lot of rockers his age, his work has steered more toward the basics. Some blues, some covers here and there, lots of stripped-down instrumentation. But behind all that has been a commitment to atmosphere and production, music with an aesthetic that's dark and unsettling in one moment, then in another tender and loving. You know, the kind of thing that makes Boz Skaggs Boz Skaggs. He just put out a new album. It's called Out of the Blues. Let's listen to a single from it. It's called Rock and Stick. I was born 
Boss Gags, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. No, oh, thanks, Jesse. Nice to be with you. So this is this new record is the last of three albums that that kind of like look back at the things that influenced you as a young man. Do you feel like you are at that point in your life where retrospection is in order? Yeah, in a way. Um, this is not the first record I've made that sort of explores this territory, but these three records are of uh, of a piece. Uh, I just like doing it. Um, I like to sing these things. And um, the point of it was just to, just to make music with people I wanted to make it with and not not be responsible for writing all the songs or or any other sort of thematic thing it's the the only criteria was songs that had some uh, particular interest to the producer uh, the first couple of records i produced were produced by Steve Jordan a uh, drummer and uh, extraordinary music guy and uh, i produced the third one but it was just um what would we like to explore? We both have a, a great curiosity about early rock and roll and and and, and R and B, of course, and the blues and and um, so we we started with a, a list of many songs and whittled it down to uh, you know fifteen or twenty as we went into each of these recordings and um, they were songs that just were interesting for different reasons and songs that we thought that we could uh, give our own spin to you were born in the mid 40s do you remember the first rock songs that you heard um yeah i do i i was as you haven't been born at that time i was among that first generation of radio brats who grew up on uh early top 40 rock and roll and uh there were of course predecessors to rock and roll Louis Jordan and stuff like that in the 40s and early 50s. But uh, yeah, the Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock. Early Elvis and Fats Domino. That first wave was uh, really came through for me and, and my generation. What did you think of them at the time? I mean, you well, were like you were like twelve, well, you, thirteen years old. However, you know that's like the the time. That was it. I was uh, yeah, nine, ten, eleven. I was in the sixth grade. I remember my first, you know, buying my first singles and hanging out with a few kids during the the lunch hour and playing. Each of us bringing in our own records and listening to each other's, and hearing you know Maybelline when I was eleven. But yeah. Um, it was a. It was something uh, that was just in the zeitgeist, so to speak. You know, we had always heard our parents' generations' music. Uh, they had things like your hit parade. The following program is your hit parade, as originally telecast Saturday, June second, nineteen fifty-six. Which was on in uh, in the fifties, and every week, uh, the top ten songs would play. And but that was my parents' generation. And then. Like out of uh, out of nothing, there suddenly appeared a whole new uh, batch of material from people that were definitely not my parents' uh, first choice. Were there particular songs that you remember blowing your mind when you were a teenager? Yeah, sure. Um, 
Elvis's Mystery Train was a was a huge. Actually, all of Elvis's early hits. It was like to a later generation, it might have been the Beatles, or later than that, it might have been I don't know. Radiohead or something, but it was when a new Elvis song came out on Top 40. That was big. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that heartbreak hotel where I'll be. I'll be just a lonely baby. Well, and then uh, it was it was Chuck Berry that, that got me uh, big. I heard Maybelline for the first time, and it was as if it were being broadcast from outer space. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You just started doing the things you used to do. It was so beautiful and so exotic and so rocking. And the lyrics were so mysterious. And, um, and then Ray Charles had to have been the biggest hit of all to me. Um... And I actually got to see Ray Charles when I was about 14 in concert when he was at the peak of his. Uh, let's see. I saw the, I saw him in about 57 or 58. And uh, what I say and, and a whole string of hits were were on the air. Hey, mama, don't you treat me wrong. Come and love you, daddy, all right long, all right long. I had, an L, I had a long playing record of his and and I knew the songs and I knew the hits and and I got to see him in an auditorium of about 3000 people and it 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 rearranged my uh the molecules in in my brain I'm still 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 sizzling at first you were just kind of like a a, a singer tambourine player at what point did you like start to think of yourself as a musician rather than as a guy who played music? It was really much later on. Um, I um, was sort of a, I was a little bit of a drifter um, as a late adolescent. Um, and I traveled. Uh, I was uh I had uh, it was Vietnam time, and I uh, I went in the army for about six months, and I left school. I got I left. I didn't really go to too much college, and uh, I I had a band in Austin, Texas, when I was about nineteen, I guess. And uh, through a series of events, I ended up going to to Europe and living there for about three years, and then and I played in little clubs and. And uh, played it with uh, some different bands and different kinds of music, and and it was only when I came back to the states uh, in 1967, and I had a, a girlfriend in San Francisco, and we had to get an apartment, and uh, it's the first time it occurred to me that I really had to like pay, settle down, pay some rent, and. So I put together a band and started playing clubs around San Francisco, and it, and it finally the light bulb went on, and I and I it occurred to me that I really am I'm a I'm a pro professional now. I've, I've I've been a part of some records. I've got my own record on the label, and then the whole thing dawned on me when I had to put together that band of the responsibility of taking on those musicians and taking care of them and getting new tires for the van and 
getting dentist appointment for the for the piano player's girlfriend, and uh, I got to work. I got busy. I got busy in about nineteen sixty-nine or nineteen seventy, and I didn't have a break for ten years. I worked every day, every uh, every every thing, anything that needed attending to, I did, and I got got a, another recording contract. And there, and then I, I you know I'm a full on pro at, at that point. But it really took a while to for me to sort of get away from the drifter, wanderlust. Uh, part of the equation to just settling into music. I want to play a song from your first first album, which was recorded in 1965 when you were bumming around in Europe. Oh, my God. And you got, I mean, there's like, this is like, I I looked on Discogs, which is, you know, a, a website where you buy used records, and you got you to pay $150 if you want a copy of this thing, because apparently there was... Only, uh, you know, a thousand or something pressed. Oh, my God. I can't believe you pulled that out. This song's called Got You On My Mind. I think you recorded this You recorded this album like in a – this was one of those things where you got like two days in a recording studio or something. I remember maybe one, but it could have been two days. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> just... let's, take a, let's take a listen to my guest boss, Skaggs, uh, as at the time William R. Skaggs on from his 1965 album, Boz, uh, released – and recorded in Sweden? Uh, Stockholm, that- yeah, in Sweden. Mm-hmm. The Carousel was the record label. Got you on my mind not too bad. No, it sounds pretty good. I mean, it sounds like you recorded it in one day, but uh, it sounds pretty good <laughs> considering. Those compressors are pulling and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I mean, well, when that's you amazing were... that you pulled that out and I, I'm really surprised to, to hear that. Thanks for the surprise, actually. Sure. I want to play a little bit of your, a song from your, your second first record which was called Boz Gags. This this record did you record this in Muscle Shoals? That's right, yeah. And Muscle Shoals is a very legendary recording studio where many many great hits were recorded, particularly um there was a long string of soul hits in the mid 1960s into the late 1960s and then uh many other hits straight through the 70s. Um I think Dwayne Allman had played there and you but was off doing the Allman Brothers or the Dwayne Allman band or something and and you kind of brought him back to play with you on this record. That's right. Yeah. Dwayne had been a a regular session player in Muscle Shoals for some time. He he was one of the first guys that from the south that they knew that had really began to make a career of 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 playing. Uh, himself had ventured out into a, a larger world, and he had long hair, and he uh, was uh, as, as something of a, 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 a renegade from the, the world that they lived in. Uh, but as a but as a person and and as a musician, he was very very highly respected uh, by not only those guys but mo- a lot of the clients 
that came in, Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett and, and Clarence Carter and, and, uh, and people who had mainline uh, careers in rhythm and blues knew about Dwayne Allman and uh, had respect. And he was, he was charismatic. He was, he was very humble, really highly respected and a, and a wonderful, wonderful fellow. Well, let's hear Dwayne Allman playing guitar on my guest Boz Skaggs record, Boz Skaggs. Um, the song's called Loan Me a Dime. It's it's like it's like more than 12 minutes long. So we are checking in with it. It starts as a relatively slow kind of bluesy song and it builds about two thirds of the way through. And, and we're checking in as things kind of uh, things kind of hit their peak. Did you have like a path for your career in mind by that point in your life? No, not at all. It was just one foot in front of the other at, at that point. I, ma- I made the record in Muscle Shoals and hung around Macon for another six months. And um, it was because, uh, you know, I was I was beginning to get the idea that I, uh, I, I needed to make some money. I needed to uh, settle down and say I wanted to stay in San Francisco for a while. And I needed uh, a gig, so I had to put together a band. And uh, then, the, as I said, the light bulb went on, and I started taking my uh, my my career as a musician a lot more seriously, and taking care of musicians and 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 a lot of business. Well, let's hear one of the gargantuan hits from your gargantuan hit album from 1976, "Silk Degrees," and my guest is Boz Skaggs, and this is Lido Shuffle. I wrote on Twitter today that uh, you were going to be a guest on the show, and somebody just tweeted me, please ask how he got so many hooks into Lido Shuffle. <laughs> um, <laughs> the groove was just a shuffle, uh, a New Orleans kind of Fats Domino thing in my head. Uh, but I was working with this uh, young rhythm section of um, great, great young players who had their finger on the pulse, I should think, I guess the best way to say it. Um, they had their finger on the pulse of contemporary music. And um, that was just a style that they that they played in. And that's uh, the way it came out in the studio. It was uh, the arranger, David Page, I would think that gave it a, a lot of its uh, character. Those guys went on to, for those who don't know, went on to become the, the band Toto. They were still, they were teenage high school kids. And um, they just um, were really tuned into the L.A. session scene and popular music and, and the black music dial as well. So it, it came together for all of us uh, with my recording. More from Boz Skaggs after a short break. He'll tell me why he thinks his singing voice is better now than it ever was before. Then later, the brilliant Irish writer and comedian Maeve Higgins. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dreams. Remember the X-Files, the show with a never-ending supply of paranormal problems and shoulder pads? Now you can watch it for free. Dreams is broadcasting the original series on Thursdays, starting from the beginning. Dreams is a new TV channel for your phone. It's free with no login. Download the free Dreams app for iPhone or Android and tune in on Thursdays. Hey, Asma. Hey, Scott. Another crazy week. We've got North Korea. Yep, we got Russia. Midterms. And, of course, President Trump. And what happens whenever there is crazy news that erupts? We pop into the studio and break it down to make sense. So if you see a headline... We've discussed it. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. Listen, we already know that you love genre movies, film craft, and female filmmakers. So if you love all those things, then by transitive property, you love my podcast, Switchblade Sisters. Hi, I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I have a conversation with a different female filmmaker about their favorite genre film. Each episode covers the filmmaking process, working in the film industry, and just like general geeking out about awesome movies. I've had such great guests like the big sick writer Emily Gordon. To me, indie movies as of late have come to be a catch-all term for a movie that kind of defies genre. Billy Madison and Half-Baked director Tamara Davis. When a comedian comes and enters onto my set, they're they're just there to be funny and we're all ready and waiting for them to be funny. Horror industry veteran and actor Barbara Crampton. That's where real drama lies for me. What's What's between you and I speaking right now? Where where are we meeting? And what's the energy that we create between us? And so many others. So check out Switchblade Sisters every Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the singer-songwriter Boz Skaggs. He recorded hit songs like The Lowdown, The Lido Shuffle, and more. His latest album, Out of the Blues, is out now. Let's take a listen to another song off his new record. This song is called I've Just Got to Forget You. I've just got to forget you That's one thing I've got to do Oh, I know You don't love me Half as much As I loved you Is it a different experience for you singing in your 70s than it was when you were in your 20s and 30s? Oh, yeah. It's, it's a much different experience. Um, the, the the music was in me. The the sound of 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 my voice was was there. The desire to do it that way, but I don't feel like I uh, had the instrument uh, to do it uh, that I have now. I'm I'm more confident in my voice. I've um, gotten the uh i feel like my style's more intact and i feel like i'm accomplishing more of what what i what i want to as a, as a singer now um and it's very very satisfying for me um i've worked I, i've worked really hard uh with my voice to to come to the to try to find that voice that's uh, that's in my head and, and i feel it um finally i can do uh 
a lot of the stuff that I that I want to do with my boys. There are there are challenges, and uh, but I think I've found a way to to, to solve some of the uh, the, the problems of, uh, that I've had, or find some technique to to get myself closer to what I feel about the music through my voice. You know, it's funny that I. I described at the beginning of our conversation this is a you know a series of albums that in some ways are retrospective but they also feel a little bit like you enjoying your craft that you've you know in in covering these songs that you love um part of what you're doing is you know appreciating the skill that you've developed over your now 50 some years as a professional musician. Yeah, well I, I I'm I'm really glad that comes through because it certainly is high on the list of reasons that I'm doing this uh, now. I, I love I love what I'm doing and I'm really having fun when I don't have to write my own songs. <laughs> <laughs> well, Boz, call, I should... call me lazy. <laughs> but no, it, it's it's a great feeling to be able to look at this music that I love. Boz, I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to come beyond Bullseye, and I so enjoyed your new album, Out of the Blues. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed being with you, Jesse. Let's go out, uh, we might as well, on another wonderful track from my guest Boz Gag's most recent record, Out of the Blues. Um, it's a cover of a, a Neil Young song that folks might not even have heard uh, that's called On the Beach. to the radio interview But I ended up all alone at the microphone Now I'm living out here on the beach But those seagulls are still out of Boskags. His new record is Out of the Blues. You can buy it, download it, stream it pretty much wherever. He just kicked off a huge nationwide tour with shows in dozens of cities. We'll have a link to dates on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's kind of a trope. Foreign comic moves to the United States, notices the stuff we take for granted, you know, figures of speech, customs the way cars look, and then they work it into their act. It's been going on since before Yakov Smirnoff, who will probably outlast all of us. Maeve Higgins is a comic and memoirist, very well known back home in Ireland. She moved to New York City in her early 30s, and yes, she worked her observations about America and New York into her set. But she also probed deeper. She thought about what led her to make the move, what it says about her, what it's like being in this strange, amazing city thousands of miles away from home. Then she wrote a book about it. It's called Maeve in America, Essays by a Girl from Somewhere Else. It's a collection of personal essays about what it's actually like to immigrate to the United States. It's a really compelling read. Can't recommend it highly enough. She's a funny and brilliant writer. Let's take a listen to some of her stand-up. Here she is on stage before an audience of Bullseye fans at Max FunCon. Call him, you know. I mean, usually I try and learn the name, obviously, but um, 
Uh, but like, I don't know, I, I guess boyfriend's okay with adolescent, maybe a partner is just so, um, like it's so business-like, it's so grown-up, you know, just like, we merged in August and now, you know, you just guy thinking, I don't know, <laughs> business, business, and, um, uh, and then I feel like seeing someone has sort of like uh, fantasy connotations, you know, just like, I'm seeing someone, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm seeing someone, like, can you see him, he's just there, uh, just there in the rocking chair by the window. <laughs> Maeve Higgins, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's creepy to hear myself doing those little jokes that I've forgotten. (laughs) Maeve, you know that you're a professional performer, right? (laughs) Yeah, but I don't listen. (laughs) There's a a line in your book. I want to say it was in your book. It might have been something else that I read Mm. you say recently, which was that you do like doing television because it proves that you're real when you watch it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> very true. Yeah, very true. I mean, it's you know, with stand up, it just disappears. And then you're like, did that happen? Am I here in this hotel room? I'm just alone all the time. <laughs> it doesn't feel like you really exist. But yeah, TV is proof of that, which is how I how I know America is real. <laughs> it's on TV so much. <laughs> um, and when you came to the United States, which is what, maybe like four or five years ago now, something like yeah, that? Yeah, almost five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What? How did it compare to your expectations of what it would be? Well, I mean, I, I constantly get things. I always imagine things differently than they than they will be. But like, I guess visually, I expected New York to be the way it is because I'd seen it in so many films. And, you know, it's so like so many buildings that I had never been to, but I recognize. So there is like this odd familiarity that I had with the city. Um, but the rest of it, I feel like I imagined everybody would be in black turtlenecks. <laughs> and I really thought there would be like more sushi than there is. I think maybe I learned about New York when sushi was like cool here and new. But now people just are just like, yeah, we might have sushi. We might have something else, you know. But I'm like, but wait, I thought we were going to be sophisticated. Um, and so I did... Um, I also kind of had like, I moved here to be a writer and I certainly had a romantic idea of kind of having all these writer friends and like getting together in salons and like quipping to each other or something. You know, like, oh, watch her. She's got a sharp tongue. But then I got here and it's like, everyone's just like, oh, I only got paid a hundred dollars for a thousand words. (laughs) Like, do you guys know of any dog walking business? <laughs> you know, it's like very different than I think uh, than I thought it was going to be in that way. Americans are almost compulsively plain spoken, especially especially in big cities and on the coast. Like, we'll just say mm. something weird and intense about ourselves. Oh, certainly, and it, I found that so. Um, <laughs> confronting when I first got to New York because I think in Ireland we kind of reveal a lot without saying much but we do kind of you know find little connections here and there with our small talk and then in England there was this kind of aloofness that I couldn't crack um and and here I just was like oh my the the level of openness with relative strangers like I um was at one of these parties that I'm sure you're familiar with, which is like a kid's party, but all the adults go to. And it kind of like blends into the evening time and people are drinking and the kids are all playing. And um, 
I got chatting to this one guy and he said to me with with the first minute of meeting him, you know, he said, you know what people don't tell you is you're not always going to like your kids. Sometimes you're not going to like your kids. And I was like, whoa, because I just asked, like, was he online for the bouncy castle? And then he like hit me with this. Like, it was just so um, intense. But like at the same time, I find it kind of relieving because when you come from a place like Ireland, you know, there's still a lot of repression there. And I wrote about this and it was, I wrote about it in the New York Times because I, I was trying to explain it. And I was like, look, when I was a kid, my mom, ex, my brother came home and he made a joke and the punchline was about rape and none of us knew what rape was. And my mom, you know, we said, we all started laughing because you know the way you like laugh at jokes when you're a child, even if you don't get them, but like, sure. you know, the rhythm of them. And my brother said the punchline and then my mother said, I don't know why you're laughing. And we kind of said, yeah, we don't know why either. Like, what's that word, rape? And she said, um, rape is when someone loves you, but you don't want them to love you. And we were like, oh. <laughs> so it's that level of like not talking to each other about real stuff that I came from. And then to get here, I mean, specifically to New York, whatever about like the Midwest or the South, people just get straight into it with you. There's like no time for kind of, you know, that uh, sort of delicate um, slash, um, you know, hidden <laughs> subtext. <laughs> What's your relationship to... Irish American America. I mean, at the moment, um, I'm just really ashamed of um, a lot of the Irish Americans, particularly the ones in power. Um, I hate to see uh, Irishness being used against other immigrants, and I see that all the time. You know, Mike Pence. A few last year, Mike Pence made. Um, he loves to talk about his Irishness, and he loves to sort of bludgeon people over the head with the fact that like his granddad came from Mayo, I think, in 1922. And, you know, he started work as a tra as a streetcar driver in Chicago. And he like raised his family and was a great man and pulled himself up by his bootstraps. And Mike Pence like told that story to a group of Latino businessmen last year. And when I read about it, I was just like, oh, man, like in 1922, basically he was fleeing a civil war that had just come after, you know, a war of independence, which you could equate to today's Syrians, right? Like you're trying to escape this war zone. Um, Syrians are banned from America. Mike Pence has been trying to do that for many years. Um, and then he came to he came to America. He was welcomed in. Had he been... Chinese in 1922 he wouldn't have been allowed in because it was the Chinese Exclusion Act so he was already lucky there that he was that he was white um he got in he got a job as a streetcar driver had he been a black person born in America he wouldn't have been allowed to get that job because it was kind of it was all unionized and blacks were not allowed to um to work on the streetcar for another few years so I just see all these advantages that he had. I don't really see the story of like, oh, here's a scrappy little Irish man, you know, with nothing to his name. He was already privileged. And Mike Pence is like privileged to the point, you know, to the power of a thousand. So, you know, Paul Ryan is another one. And Mick Mulvaney on St. Patrick's Day last year, <laughs> Mick Mulvaney. Also, I'm sorry for like 
ranting about Mike Pence as if like you are Mike Pence. <laughs> it's just that I know I would never like get in a room with him because his wife wouldn't let us or whatever weird rule he has. Yeah, I mean he but, and like, I. It's fair enough. I mean he and I dated for four years. <laughs> yeah. Before he met his wife. Yeah, and if you're still in contact, would you text him and say stop using his Irishness? But yeah, it just it's really um. It's devastating for me as an Irish person to see them in the halls of power, like having pulled up the ladder behind them and, you know, so quickly turned on other immigrants. You know, it's really not that long ago that like Paul Ryan's, you know, ancestors came over to escape the famine and Mick Mulvaney is my personal little, ugh. I saw him, he was wearing like um, a shamrock for St. Patrick's Day last year. And he was wearing the shamrock as he was announcing cuts to famine relief in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was just like, what? Like literally Ireland, like in our DNA, we should remember that we had a huge famine that killed a million people out of eight million. And and we, you know, we just don't seem to remember that something about being American and being a white immigrant here just makes us forget, I think. I actually read the transcript of that speech and the, the phrase that sticks out to me um, or stuck out to me was you can't have my pot of gold. <laughs> and he <laughs> We should explain he was also wearing a green top hat. <laughs> I mean the man, you know, it's it's very it's like too easy to mock what the administration looks like at the moment and I would say as an Irish person I don't want to get into it. <laughs> but he does look like a leprechaun. That particular man does look like a leprechaun and I know because I've seen leprechauns. <laughs> <laughs> Maeve, lately you've been podcasting with the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson. Mm-hmm. She's also the former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. She's a pretty distinguished woman. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> did the two of you like like meet up at a cafe <laughs> did you did you like run into each other at a at a pug meetup <laughs> no the i mean my first impression of her was made when i was eight years old that was when she was president and so to me she's always just been this like powerful woman in a red blazer with like clip-on earrings who like goes around like being righteous <laughs> so that's I've known her since I was a child in in that sense. And then I heard that like she wanted to make a podcast because she's hugely into climate justice and she's so passionate about it and really wants to spread the word. So I think initially she was like, I need to make a film about this. And then people were like, a film takes a really long time. And like, why don't you make a podcast? And she was like, what's a podcast? You know, she didn't know what a podcast was. So then she had a chemistry test or I had a chemistry test with her to see, you know, if I could sort of chat with her and bring some levity and some, obviously like I'm a podcaster, so I could bring that to the table. But it was terrifying. Like they flew me to London to meet her. She's incredibly busy. Like she was, she was coming back from Rwanda. She was like on her way to it was her 50th anniversary graduation from Harvard. So she was like going to go there next. So I met her in London. She had one morning to spare to test out a few people. And I was first and I got lost in London. So I was like running around, looking in all these like shuttered windows, trying to find her. And I found the building, but I couldn't find the door. So I was looking in the window and I just saw her 
peering out at me. She's like in her 70s. She's a stateswoman. She looks exactly the way she used to look like when I knew her as a child. It was so disconcerting. So I was just kind of like mouthing through the window like, sorry, I was late (laughs) and I was last. And um, it was, yeah, it was a nightmare. But we met and she thought I was okay. And we, we started to make the podcast like the next week. So, um, it was, um, it's fascinating, like to, to be in a room with her. Like the other person that I podcast with is Neil deGrasse Tyson. And I would, I would sort of compare them in, in the way that like, you know, when someone just knows so much more than you, that you just feel like kind of like a puppy and they're <laughs> and they're you know a world-renowned astrophysicist <laughs> like Maeve, neil degrasse tyson was on this show once and yeah he nerd bullied me so hard <laughs> i i asked him like what if he ever was like overwhelmed by the like almost infinite nature of space like sort of like when you go to the beach and you look out over the horizon then you remember that you're gonna die and um he came down on me like a hammer he just destroyed me on my own show. <laughs> I want to hear. I didn't hear that one. I want to hear that so bad. Did you Did you edit it so that you sounded cooler? <laughs> <laughs> I edited it so that we were both wearing a vest with stars on it. <laughs> I mean, you just have to kind of like, I don't know, you just have to like go with the ride. Like when somebody knows so much... Would you say that his knowledge is as infinite as the universe? (laughs) (laughs) But like, it's the same with Mary Robinson. Like, I just have to bow down and be like, you are the expert. And like, my job is to just try and like help you, you know, help get it out of you and help you put it in terms that like we can understand. Um, And that's, I think it's a really fun and a really easy job to do. Um, and I feel so lucky that I get to do it and that I also get to find out, you know, she tells me like all these like gossipy stories from the halls of power. And she also like tells me about what it's like in um, this Kenyan village that she visits often. And then like with Neil in between, I mean, so you so you've talked to him, so, you know, like in between. It's not like the mic goes off and he just like stops being brilliant. He's always like, <laughs> Maeve, do you know the difference between a stalactite and a, and a, or, you know, do you know what flotsam is? Do you know what jetsam is? You know, and I'm just like, aren't they the eels and the little mermaid? You know, like he's just so, <laughs> he's just so clever. Um, so I just think it's a, like, it's so fun to me. Like, I guess what your job too, that we just get to talk to these people that are so brilliant and, um, we get to do that because we're we're just good at chatting. We'll wrap up my interview with Maeve Higgins when we return from a break. She'll tell me whether she's glad she moved to the U.S. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from our sponsor, Zegram Expeditions. Some people believe all of Earth's great stories are in the past, told long ago by the likes of Darwin or Magellan. But Zegram believes the greatest stories still lie ahead. And they start with you, because you're an explorer, and great explorers go together. Start planning your expedition with them at greatexplorersgo.com. As soon as you wake up, you need the latest, and that is why Up First is here. It is NPR's morning news podcast. In just 10 minutes, you can start your day informed. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my friend's favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. I'm Judge John Hodgman. You're hearing the voices of real litigants, real people who have submitted disputes to my internet court at the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I hear their cases, I ask them questions, they're good ones, and then I tell them who's right and who's wrong. Thanks to Judge John Hodgman's ruling, my dad has been forced to retire one of the worst dad jokes of all time. Instead of cutting his own hair with a flowbie, my husband has his hair cut professionally. I have to join a community theater group. And my wife has stopped bringing home wild animals. It's the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Find it every Wednesday at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks, Judge John Hodgman. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and memoirist Maeve Higgins. Her latest book is called Maeve in America, Essays by a Girl from Somewhere Else. It's a collection of personal essays about her move from Ireland to here in the United States. Maeve also co-hosts the podcast Mothers of Invention with the former Irish president, Mary Robinson. For my job, I I read a lot of Mm -hmm. comics books, you know, Um, because a a great comic will put out a book and it's a reason that they're doing press. And so I get to have them on the show, whoever it might be. And they're a mixed bag. It doesn't always track with how good people are on stage. And often the more successful ones are ones where the person's on-stage voice translates comfortably to the page such that the when you're reading it, you feel like they're talking to you. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel that way about your book. Your writing is, you know, it's, it still feels like just as authentic a reflection of you, but it doesn't feel like an attempt to directly translate your stage voice to the page. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see your writing voice as different from your holding a microphone in a nightclub voice? I do. Yeah. Because, um, like some certain things happen, like when you're on stage, at least for me, I'm often just working out an idea. So it's quite nascent and spontaneous. And I also need that laugh. (laughs) So I will like do whatever I can do with when there's people who've been drinking, staring at me, waiting for that laugh. Like, I will get it. And if that means exaggerating or fibbing or I any, dancing, <laughs> whatever I can think of, you know, that's what happens on stage. Like, I try and be as close to myself as possible, but it's, you know, I'm there to kind of um, figure stuff out and, and get laughs. Whereas like with writing, it's more, um, you know, it's just so different. It feels so different to me because obviously you're alone and you're uh, trying to be truthful. And certainly like writing for the New York Times, literally they fact check everything. And that was a real, like it wasn't a problem at the start, but it was like, oh, it was a real, like I had to pull up because they fact check every sentence. So I can't just like say something because it sounds a bit better or funnier or like easier, you know, to make a point. So it's much closer to the truth. And also you have, I have to really think things through. And I think kind of writing is a way of thinking and you have to pin your colors to the mast as well because you're actually putting it in a book. So you're kind of saying this is this is it like this is what I believe and this is my um, experience and I've you know in some cases gone out and reported this and this is what I found 
So, yeah, I think it is. I think it's a very different medium for me, certainly. Um, I quite like some of those books that are like comics, you know, being doing their comedy in book form. Um, I get a kick out of those for sure. Are you glad that you decided to become an immigrant in the United States rather than a, a native in Ireland? Definitely. I think I'm also, you know, I'm here at a really fascinating time for immigration. And when I say fascinating, you know, I mean horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I'm fine. I'm very lucky. You know, I have my visa. Did you get one of those person of extraordinary ability or whatever it's called? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So I got an alien of extraordinary ability visa, which um, it's called O-1 visa, which uh, you can get if you're, if you've kind of, um, you know, if you're good at your job, this is, basically, and you're in a fancy this, the job. The alien of extraordinary ability visa, of course, created by Ronald Reagan in response to the groundswell of support for E.T. from the movie E.T. <laughs> I just arrived here in a bike basket. <laughs> it's like if your finger can glow, um, you get a visa. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very like it's a very lucky it's a very lucky break to get this visa. Um and that was one of the reasons I got so interested in immigration because I kind of got here and I was like, wait now, like why me? And why not them? You know, why why not um all of these basically Americans who are living here without papers, but they've Americans all they know and they're they've been through the school system and they're, you know, they're paying taxes, the, the dreamer, the generation of dreamers who are clearly more deserving of um, papers than I am. But and not to be, you know, feel any guilt about it or sort of white debt or anything. But I do feel a responsibility as an immigrant to um, like at least know what other immigrants are facing and why that is and to kind of I'm very curious about it and I've um I started like to follow that curiosity a few years ago with the podcast that I did about immigration and um now I write about it a lot and I've met so many immigrants and um I just find it like extraordinary because so many people in America you know are are come from immigrant stock like half this city New I'm in New York at the moment and half the city was born outside of America and right across the country, people have, you know, ancestors who aren't from here. So it kind of blows my mind. And the more I learn about it, and I think something kind of positive in the last year, because this administration is so vicious on immigrants, um, but something kind of positive is that I've noticed in the last year that more native born Americans are actually interested now and they're asking questions and they're going to marches and, you know, I mean, it took families being separated, but I think people are more aware now of like the private prisons um, that immigrants are in and the kind of hurdles that people face uh, trying to get citizenship when there's no line to stand in, you know. Well, Maeve, I'm so grateful that you took the time to be on Bullseye and I just, I your book is uh, lovely and hilarious. Thank you for doing this. Oh, Jesse, it's lovely. Uh, it was lovely to talk to you. Maeve Higgins. Her new book, Maeve in America, Essays by a Girl from Somewhere Else, 
It's in bookstores everywhere. She's also hosting a companion podcast to the book on her website. I'll have a link to it on the Bullseye page on MaximumFun.org. And if you'd like to hear Maeve's other show, where she and former Irish President Mary Robinson talk about climate justice, it's called Mothers of Invention. Every week on Bullseye, before we go, we'd like to leave you with a recommendation from me. We call it The Outshot. So I actually spent a lot of time thinking about how to describe Detroiters to you. It's a show on Comedy Central. It's about two best friends who run an ad agency together. But that doesn't really cut it description-wise. I mean, even if you add that they are in Detroit and the show is sort of about their Detroitiness, there's a lot of Werner's ginger ale talk. It helps, but it doesn't quite get there. Because if you dig into Detroiters, really explore the themes, the show, at the end of the day, ultimately, when all is said and done, is about two dumb dummies acting dumb. Carter Grant, VP of Marketing, Chrysler. Uh, yeah, have we met? We're about to. Sam Duvet. Uh, hi, Sam. Tim Cramlin, Cramlin Advertising. Hello, Tim. Cramblin Advertising? Are you Hank Cramblin's son? That I am, yeah. Do you know Sally Pomerantz? Head of creative for Pomerantz and Klein. Hank Cramblin, what a legend. How is your father? He went insane. He lives in a nut house now. Oh. Well, the next time you see him, you tell him Sally Pomerantz from Chicago said hello. He won't understand that. Talking to him is like talking to Bugs Bunny. Well, then you tell him what's up, Doc. Thank you. That'll mean a lot to him. And also, they love each other. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're mad because I met Paws the Tiger. Why are you being such a jerk? Because you're a complete <laughs> me in my dream last night, Tim. What? Yeah, you just walk right by me like you didn't even recognize me. Why would I do that? Yeah, I keep on saying, Tim, Tim. You walk right by me like I was just some old white guy. Also, I was white in the dream. Well, that's why I didn't recognize you. You were white. Oh. The stars are Sam Richardson and Tim Robinson. Richardson was a regular on Veep. Robinson was a writer and performer on Saturday Night Live. They're best friends in real life. They met at the Second City in Detroit. And you can feel their friendship in every scene of the show. It's rare that they're not on screen together. And they're so sweet that they can really do just about anything, no matter how dumb it is. Hey, how are you? We're here for the charity event. And the entry is a suggested $100 donation. And I would suggest a much lower number. <laughs> is there an open bar? Yes. Oh, you're going to lose money on this It's dumb, stupid. This is dumb. You guys are suckers. Here you go, sucker. The show has other virtues. Race is rarely an explicit theme in the show, but you feel it. Most obviously, Richardson is black and Robinson is white. And it's just fun to see such a warm, authentic friendship between two people who are of different races. Besides that, though, Detroit, where the show is set, is America's blackest city. And Detroiters, the show, reflects that. There's a lot of black people in it. If there's a crowd of people, it usually makes sense for a city that is 84% black. Store clerks and doctors and advertising clients and cab drivers and people who are just you know, wandering through the frame incidentally, are mostly black. It's not like it's a show that is exclusive of other races. It's just a show with a ton of black people, like Detroit is a city with a ton of black people. And not for nothing, but Robinson's character is married to Richardson's character's sister, who's black. 
And it might not be until you actually see it on screen that you realize, get this kind of rush of realization, how rare it is on TV to see a man kiss a woman who has darker skin than he does. That it's not a big deal on Detroiters feels like a big deal. The thrill of all of this is that the show isn't the slightest bit deracinated. I mean, race is a real part of people's lives, and it is a real part of the show. But the show is also not focused on race. It is focused on two dumb dummies acting dumb. Sally Pomerantz, just as lovely as I'd always imagined. I mean, wrong color, but just as lovely. Yeah, he imagines everyone black. <laughs> I suppose it's because I'm black. Oh, that could be. Could be. That could, could be. But the magic of Detroiters is just that it's a warm place to be. These guys really love each other. They love their bad ideas and their weird families and their bizarro co-workers. Detroit, as they see it, is a really nice place to hang out. I guess I don't even really know what I think. Well, I guess we know he existed historically. Right, yeah. Historically, we know he existed. He had followers. He inspired people. That's documented. We know that. But do I think that he lives in the North Pole and flies around the world one night a year giving everybody presents? No. Yeah. And I don't think if you kill him, you become him. No, absolutely not. That's insane. If he dies, he becomes a snowflake, and then whoever that snowflake lands on, that's the new Santa Claus. Yeah. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where on Monday our colleague Stacy saw somebody in a stormtrooper outfit, like a stormtrooper from Star Wars, wandering around in the park. They looked lost. However, we should explain that we are on the ninth floor of our building. We're pretty far away, and it's possible they were just wearing stormtrooper pajamas. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows at MaxFun are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer at MaxFun is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music was provided to us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our thanks to him. Our theme music is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use it. And if you'd like to hear any of our past shows, you can hear literally hundreds of interviews, segments, and more on our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also hear them on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR. 